All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, that is we, where we're headed uh, this week and for the next few weeks. Uh, we, this morning, are beginning a series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, before we dive right in, uh, let me tell you a little bit more about kind of how, how we got here and, and what the, the plan is. So anytime that I plan out a sermon series, um, I try to make sure that we're getting a balanced diet of Scripture, right? So, you know, I try to alternate between text-based series uh, and topic-based series, you know, things where we go through a particular passage or book of the Bible, but then also ones we're looking at some of these big ideas. So we've got something light going through uh, Ephesians here, or earlier this year we went through the book of Numbers, or at least parts of it. Um, but then there's also topics, like when we went through the five senses earlier uh, this year, things like that. Uh, and so another thing that I try to alternate between is Old Testament texts and New Testament texts. Uh, and so as I was planning things out, I, I looked over the past sermon series that, that we've done, uh, that I've done with you, and I realized that though we've gone through various portions of texts, we've never actually gone through an entire book of the Bible together. And so I thought we could do this together with Ephesians this fall. And so we're going to be working our way through Ephesians over the next uh, few months together. But why Ephesians, right? Why, why that? Well, the book of Ephesians is an incredibly rich description of the church. Uh, it's a description of the church that is actually very unique in several ways from Paul's other letters. I'll tell you more about that as we get into it. Um, but as I was originally making plans uh, for sermon series at the beginning of the year, I thought that, well, after being here with you for a couple of years, uh, that it might be good to go ahead and, and start digging into this question of, hey, what does it mean to really be the church together? You know, we've kind of been getting to know each other, but, but man, where are we headed? Who are we? And Ephesians, I think, is a great way to start doing that. Uh, but now that we're adapting to sort of being a church in the midst of a pandemic, I think this question's even more important. Because originally I thought this would be a way of sort of reimagining uh, what church looks like together. But now it's actually sort of a way of rebuilding from the ground up, right? Toppled stones, ice age, and all. It's a reference to last week, if, if you listen to that. So for the next few months, we're going to be swimming in the deep waters of Ephesians together and exploring what it means to be God's people, the church. And today we're starting with the first half of chapter 1, a dense text full of rich theological truth. So let's read together Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places 
Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. He has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and for the deep and and rich truths that are in this passage. God, I pray that as we reflect on your word together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I told you that the book of Ephesians offers a unique perspective on the church. And the first clue to that is actually here in verse 1. Right? In many ways, these two opening verses are pretty much the same as Paul's other letters. There's a from line and a to line and then a simple greeting, grace and peace. But if you look at your Bible, you might see a little footnote there right in the middle or towards the end of verse 1. It says something like, some manuscripts lack in Ephesus. Some manuscripts don't have that, that two-line fully filled out, right? It doesn't say in Ephesus. You see, what that means is that among the various ancient manuscripts of this letter, many of the early ones aren't actually addressed to the Ephesians. They weren't, it wasn't actually addressed to Ephesus. It just said, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So the book of the Bible that we know as Ephesians originally didn't actually have a title. It didn't have a specific address for delivery. In fact, many of the early church fathers thought that this letter was originally for the church in Laodicea. So if that tradition had stuck, then we would have the book of Laodiceans in our Bible instead of the book of Ephesians. So how did this happen? And why does it matter? Right? Well, most modern scholars think that this is what happened with this letter. 
Uh, They think that this book of Ephesians was not actually addressed to a specific church, but rather a letter that was meant to be sent to a whole group of churches. Likely, uh, the churches in the, the province of Asia, which included Ephesus, Laodicea, Colossae, and others. It's like this, right? Whenever I am sending an email to someone specific, I begin with a specific address, right? I'll say, Dear Jerry, or Dear Mary, right? Or Dear Bill, right? I'll, I'll do a specific address. But when I send an email out to the whole church, as I do every week, I begin by simply saying, Dear Church. I don't put a name on it because it's going to a whole group of people. And that's exactly what it looks like Paul may have done with this letter. It wasn't sent to a specific church, but rather to a whole group of churches. And so in the earliest copies of the letter, there wasn't a specific name to Ephesus, right? But as the letter got passed along from church to church in the province of Asia, later copies of it ended up having that name written in. And Ephesians is the one that stuck around. And that's the one that that we have in our Bibles. So that's the idea about how this happened. But why does any of that matter, right? Is that just nerdy scholarly stuff? I, I think it does matter because if this letter is not addressed to a specific church, but rather a general group of churches, well, that means that Paul isn't writing to address specific church issues, but rather describing the general nature of what it means to be the church, capital C, church. And that's exactly what we see throughout the book of Ephesians. Unlike Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians, Paul doesn't address any specific issues in the book of Ephesians. There's no Q&A like we find in Corinthians. There's no harsh correction like we see in the book of Galatians. There's no specific encouragement like you see in Philippians. Rather, Ephesians is filled with general truth about Jesus and the church. And again, that's capital C, church. Not the Ephesian church or the Laodicean church, but the universal church across the the area that it's being delivered to. And this is how Paul uses the word church throughout the letter. Right? The word church does pop up several times throughout the book of Ephesians. And every time we see the word church, it's not intended as lowercase c to identify a specific group of people, but rather a capital C to refer to the church. So at the end of chapter 1, the church is described as the body of Christ, filled with the fullness of God. That's not just one specific church, that's the church. The body of Christ filled with the fullness of God. In in chapter 3, verse 10, it says that the church reveals the diverse wisdom of God. Right? That's the church at large. In 3, verse 21, it says the church reflects the glory of God. And then on in chapter 5, there's this description of the relationship between Christ and the church, which is used to describe the relationships that we find in our own families. All of these are capital C, church. 
not a specific church in some specific city, but the church at all times and all places, the universal church. So as we look through the book of Ephesians, we're going to be getting this big picture theology of what it means to be the church. Church is not just about getting together and doing stuff. It's about becoming the fullness of God, revealing the wisdom of God, reflecting the glory of God. That's what this letter is all about. So let's dig into the rest of this passage together. All right, verses 3 to 14 are dense, right? I mean, we just read it. It is full of all kinds of big language. In fact, in Greek, verses 3 to 14 are all one long sentence. Paul is like a can of Pringles. Once you pop, the fun don't stop, right? He, once he, he gets going and he's just going, he's like the Energizer Bunny, right? He just keeps going and going and going. But these verses are filled with some of the most rich theological language in the whole letter, perhaps in the, in the whole New Testament. He writes about blessing and destiny. He writes about redemption and forgiveness. He writes about wisdom and mystery. He writes about praise and glory. Right? These verses are thick. They are dense. Like, like a rich chocolate cake, right? You, you're reading the whole thing all at once kind of makes you dizzy, makes you a little sick to your, your spiritual stomach, so to speak. But before we get carried away, kind of underlining all these different words that we're talking about, defining them, let's pause. Because I don't want us to miss the forest for all these trees. See, we can easily get bogged down in the vocabulary of these various, uh, these, these beginning verses and actually miss what Paul's doing in this opening blessing of the letter. Because Paul is not just spouting off a bunch of theology here. Paul is telling a story. And it's not just any story. He is telling the story of Israel. So several years ago, I learned the opening words to a traditional Jewish blessing. Uh, Jewish blessings that can be used really at any time, but, but are especially used on Sabbath, whenever the Jewish people pause to remember the story of God's resting on the seventh day. Or uh, on Passover, when the people celebrate the story of when God set them free. These words of blessing begin like this. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu. That's the Hebrew. In English, it's blessed be the Lord our God. Blessed be the Lord our God. Now look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is using this traditional Jewish blessing, but he is adapting it from, from that original. He goes from blessed be the Lord our God to blessed be the God and Father of our Lord. You see what he's doing? And then he goes on in the rest of this passage to tell the story of Israel. 
Now let's review the story of Israel together, right? It all begins in Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 12, who God chose and calls to follow him. And then God promised him with a son, and not only a son, but many children, right? In Genesis 15, God takes Abraham outside and tells him to look up and count the stars. And he says, so shall your descendants be. And God keeps his promise. Abraham has a son, and over the course of generations, his family becomes a whole people group. But they end up in Egypt, and they end up enslaved. But then God calls Moses to free the people from their slavery and lead them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, where he gives the people the gift of the law so they can know him and follow him. And then finally, God leads them from Sinai through the wilderness into the promised land, where each tribe receives an inheritance of land. And ultimately, the presence of God comes to dwell among them in the temple in Jerusalem. This is the story of Israel. Abraham is chosen and promised many children. The people are freed from slavery and given the law. And then they move into the land, which is filled with the presence of God. So now look back at the passage in Ephesians. Verse 3 begins with that general Jewish blessing. And then he goes on to tell this story. In verse 4, God chose us. In verse 5, God adopted us as children. In verse 7, God redeemed us, freed us from sin. In verse 9, God made himself known. In verse 11, God has given an inheritance. And in verse 14, God has marked us with the Holy Spirit. This is the same story as Israel's story. Paul, just like he adapts this Jewish blessing, is adapting the whole story of Israel, the entire Old Testament, and telling it again right here, adapting it in Christ. Because just as God chose Abraham, he's chosen us. Just as God promised Abraham children, he has adopted us as his children. Just as God freed the people from Egypt, he has redeemed us from sin. That word redeemed is, is the same word that would be used to describe freeing a slave. Just as God made himself known to them in the law, he has made himself known to us in Christ. Just as God gave them land for an inheritance, he has given us an inheritance in Christ. Just as God came to dwell with them in the temple, he has come to dwell in us through his Holy Spirit. You see, what Paul is saying here is that in this opening blessing is that we are part of God's great story. The church is not God's plan B when things didn't work out with Israel. God is still doing plan A. As he writes in Romans, the church has been grafted in to Israel. This is not, there's not a, a Jewish God's people and the rest of God's people. There is just God's people and God's purposes from the beginning. 
And Paul is going to come back to that theme in the second part of chapter 2. But we'll get, get around to that in a few weeks. For now, we can simply marvel at the fact that as the church, we are caught up in the story of God from before the foundation of the world. But how does this happen? Right? After all, we don't follow the law. We don't live in the land. We don't worship at the temple. How exactly are we a part of this story? Well, there's another phrase throughout this passage that occurs again and again and again. In Christ. In Christ. In each of these movements of God's story, Paul says that they are accomplished in Christ. Look back through again. Verse 4, he chose us in Christ. Verse 5, he destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ. Verse 7, in him, right, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Verse 9, he has made known to us the mystery of his will that he set forth in Christ. Verse 11, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. And then verse 13, in him, in Christ, you also were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. You see, this whole story is summed up in Christ. And that's actually what it says in verse 10. God's plan for the fullness of time is to gather up all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That word, to gather up, uh, or other translations say to unite, right, can also be translated to sum up. That's what this word is. It's to sum up, to make a long story short, right? So there's the long story of Israel. But to make a long story short, Jesus. To make a long story short, in Christ, right? Christ is the summary of that whole story. God's plan is to sum up, to gather up all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. And this means that in Christ, heaven and earth are joined together, are gathered together. Right? This is why we pray every week, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because in Christ, we believe that God's kingdom is actually coming on earth. God's plan for the fullness of time is not for us to wait around until he whisks us up into heaven, but rather his plan is to unite, to gather up heaven and earth in Christ. This is God's plan from before the foundation of the earth for the fullness of time. To bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And this is the story that we are a part of in Christ. And so what does it mean to be in Christ? 
Well, I actually don't have to come up with a fancy illustration for this because God has already given us one. Baptism. Baptism is the image that God has given to us to show us what it means to be in Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that we are baptized into Christ. And so being in Christ is like being baptized. The image is being immersed in water. Now, I don't know about you, you know, this summer has been a strange summer, but summer is, is often a time for swimming, right? Of going and getting into the water because the water is just barely swimmable up here in the Northwest during summertime. Uh, I'm not much of a swimmer, but what I do know is that whenever I kick and flail, I'm more likely to sink than if I stop, right? Uh, kicking and flailing around is a great way to get exhausted, start sinking, and drown, right? And that's my deep fear every time I get into water. I'm just not that much of a swimmer. And so to be in Christ is not to kick and flail, not to do a bunch of stuff, but to be still. This is how we rest in Christ. Not to do a bunch of things. This whole opening part of Ephesians, we do nothing. God has done everything in Christ. We don't have to earn anything, right? Paul's going to say that in the next chapter, but he's already beginning here. God has done everything. This story is God's story, and we have been grafted in by being in Christ. And so, this is what it means to be the church. This is where Paul starts this letter, where he describes what it is not just to be a church, but to be the church. It begins with God. It begins in Christ. And we don't do anything. And so that's my challenge to you this week. I often give you a challenge to, to try to do something. My challenge to you this week, don't do anything. My challenge to you this week is to stop, to rest, to remember that God has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We need not kick or flail. We need only rest. We have all things in Christ.